Please join me now in prayer. Dear Lord, I ask that you would open our minds to the truth of your word by the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to see Jesus. Open our hearts to love him more and more. Open our wills to do only that which is righteous in your sight, so that your name may be glorified. A reading from the epistle of 2 Peter, chapter 1, beginning with verse 16. The word of the Lord. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves have heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. It's always encouraging when I see just how much love is in this place and even growing up in this church, seeing people grow up in this church and become young adults and seeing all the little kids just latch on. It's, it's, um, it's one of the delights of having been in one place for 25 years as you get to see this. It was quite a few years ago when I remember just staring up at the ceiling asking, God, are you there? Is it true? I had, I had worked out cognitively that Christianity, you know, was certainly 98 at least percent likely to be absolutely true, every word of it, but there was that nagging possibility. I had already been uh, a pastor for years, ministering, preaching, walking with God, um, and yet there was this 2% possibility in my head that maybe everything really is meaningless. Maybe a billion years, trillion years from now, after the stars have gone out, no one will have known that humanity even existed. Maybe there is no meaning in this life. Maybe there is no God. Maybe we're alone. Maybe it really is absurd. Maybe love and justice don't mean anything at all. Maybe we're just bacteria infesting a planetoid somewhere that didn't exist and one day will not exist again. And that that hollow, empty feeling was nagging upon me, though, though in a court of law, 98% is really high standard. Uh, but, but in my mind, that 2% was eating me alive. And what was going on inside of me was not primarily cognitive in hindsight. Um, you know, my story is, this part of my story is not necessarily easy to map onto everybody else's experience because oftentimes when facing doubt, Christians will tell people, well, you just need to pray more. You need to read your Bible more. Throw it all on the back of your devotional life as, as a way of never really addressing the intellectual questions that you actually have about the significance and meaning of Christianity. 
And, uh, and yet, for me, that was not the case. I had gotten a Master of Divinity. Uh, I had graduated summa cum laude. I had won the school's theology award. I had won the school's grant for theological studies. I had gotten a PhD in historical theology. I had written a doctoral dissertation on, on private prayer practices in Anglo-American Protestantism between 1870 and 1950. I had run an apologetics website. I had run a Christian study center. I had written a book about a Christian worldview. For me, it was not a lack of thinking. I spent my whole life thinking. It was something spiritual nagging inside of me. Something empty. Something hollow. That made that 2% possibility grow into this raging doubt. And I remember at one point just committing to change one thing in my life. Uh, it was also a time in which I was undergoing a huge amount of suffering in my ministry, with my health, with my life. Um, there was a lot going on. It was a rough time, and yet I remember deciding that I would do something which I had previously done, but it had been years. Because, see, as a pastor, you spend your whole week in the Bible preparing sermons and preparing lessons and trying to answer people's questions. But I decided that I'd go back to a practice that I had dropped somewhere in all the busyness of pastoral ministry, I decided every day I'm just going to get up, make my coffee, feed my cats, then go to my window with my coffee and my Bible and read at least one chapter and just see if God is going to speak to me anything at all. I'm going to do that every day. And what happened inside of me was so powerful, not all at once, but over the weeks and over the months and over the years, I began feasting upon the Word of God. It went from being text to being a living, breathing entity. God became so alive. Jesus became so beautiful. Reading the Psalms, friends, you know, I've got one of those Bibles with that super thin cellophane kind of, of, of paper. And that kind of paper, when it gets wet, it, it wrinkles. And my, I have the wrinkliest book of Psalms you will ever find because of the tears of joy streaming from my eyes as I saw again and again the love of God for me, the love of God for His people, the beauty of Jesus and the finality of His salvation and that 2% cognitive doubt became such a weak, wimpy, pathetic little thing. And I want that for you. As my family, I want every one of you to have that kind of relationship with the Word of God, that it would come alive in you, that it would become the thing you look forward to most every single day. Meditate upon it and allow it to wash over you with the love and the grace of your best friend, Jesus Beautiful things happen when you put your heart under God's Word. We're going to talk about the Scriptures today. It's from a passage which we're going to look at over several weeks because it's the passage in which Judas betrays Jesus. And we're not going to talk about that part much today. We're going to talk about something that Jesus says in this very last moment with his disciples before he goes to the cross to accomplish salvation. He's just got a little bit, a tiny bit of time to tell them a few things. And there's something he mentions that is so important for us 
and such a source of life. We're going to read John chapter 13. I'm going to begin in verse 18 and read through verse 24. This is the gospel according to John, the gospel of Christ. Jesus is speaking. He says this, I am not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. And his disciples stared at one another, a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. That's where we're going to stop for now. You can read it. Not right now. Oh. Before we get into the passage and the particular detail that I think is so incredibly significant, I want to ask a question as Christians, why we might want to even throw all of our trust onto a book or a collection of 66 books, uh, which we know bound together as the Bible. At that point, they just knew them as hegrafe, the scriptures. Uh, why would we throw all our trust onto this? Um, there are reasons to ask the question. Uh, for example, throwing all your trust into a book, even the Bible, could easily lead to a legalistic focus on rules over the person Jesus. Jesus warned us of that. He, he spoke of the religious leaders of his own day. He said, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me. We, we see this happen all the time. People who are more focused on principles than people, more, more focused on their own performance than on the performance of Jesus on their behalf, more concerned to make sure they, they dot every I and cross every T than they are about Jesus and his heart. Religious people who tithe their mint and cumin, marginally useful kitchen spices, Jesus said, yet neglect weightier matters of the law like love and justice and mercy. Religious people who will strain out a gnat, Jesus, Jesus said, but swallow a camel. It's absolutely a possibility. When you make Christianity center on a book rather than on Jesus, you can easily miss out on the big thing the book is all about, which is about what? Jesus. Sunday school answer. It's always the same. Uh, so you could argue that throwing all our trust onto the Bible, the scriptures, risks potentially setting up a legalistic focus that can distract us from what that book is pointing us to, who is Christ our Lord. And frankly, continuing the argument, uh, there's some really disturbing stuff in the Bible uh, that none of us is really sure what to do with. The conquest of Canaan involved the driving out of an entire civilian population uh, ancient Israelite practice of stoning as a means of execution. The concept of hell, which the Bible records Jesus more than anyone else teaching us about. None of us really wants to believe in hell. Uh, and, and, and we have to face the fact that viewing the Bible as a final authority does greatly limit our flexibility 
as cultural and social values shift from from nation to nation and from civilization to civilization. You see, every every culture has problems with the Bible. There, every culture has some point at which the, the Christian scriptures just rub them the wrong way. For example, in in traditional shame and honor-based cultures, there, there's a lot of offense taken at the notion that God forgives sins, at the notion that uh, we should forgive our enemies. It seems unjust. Why should perpetrators go free? Why should cruel people get blessing? Why should somebody who has dishonored their father and mother then receive a hero's welcome? It's offensive to their culture. In our own modern Western culture, it's uh, our notion of personal freedom and independence that that, that that Scripture rubs up against, particularly things like sexual ethics. Um, everybody finds something offensive here, and yet if we could just find a different approach to the Bible, the argument goes. If we could find an approach that doesn't view it as absolutely infallible authority above the church, then that would open up room for a lot of flexibility in some of these more controversial areas. If we could find a different hermeneutic, a different way of reading scripture, one that doesn't assume verbal plenary inspiration, for example, then we wouldn't be stuck facing so many painful moral choices, choices that actually do bring about a great amount of suffering for those who have having to commit the hard choices. If we could find a different way of reading scripture, um, a whole lot of people in miserable marriages would be free to just walk away from their suffering and find life with somebody who's going to love them the, the way that they want and deserve to be loved. If it weren't for the Bible's apparent teaching on sexuality, some of us would be free to develop certain kinds of relationships that would seem very natural to us and might offer some comfort. If there were a way to perceive Scripture as less authoritative or something to be interpreted more than simply received, then, you know, no Christian woman would ever have to think twice about terminating a pregnancy when that pregnancy could absolutely disrupt her life, her health, her career, her sanity, and her future. Uh, there are all sorts of reasons to find a different approach to the Bible. But Jesus, in the passage we have just read, removes that option from us. In the passage we just read, maybe, we, maybe you overlooked the little detail, but he... He really removes that option that we would so welcome because it would be easy. How does he do that? Uh, Jesus does it by tying his own personal authority as Savior to the authority of his apostles who produced what we know as the New Testament. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. Whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Now, he had just said, I'm not talking about all of you. There's one of you that I have not chosen. But the other 11 of you, he is saying, I have chosen you. You are my apostles. And those who receive your word receive me. Contextually, Jesus is passing his authority as a last last chance opportunity, handing that authority over to his apostles. Um, anyone who accepts you accepts me. Jesus would later tell the apostles that he would remind them of everything that he had done and said and that he would give them further instruction by his Holy Spirit. It's actually in the very next chapter, John 14. Jesus says, 
All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And this fits with everything else that Jesus says about Scripture elsewhere. Just as Jesus told the apostles that the Holy Spirit would inspire their writing, he had said the Holy Spirit had inspired the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus had had spoken so highly of the threefold division of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the, the Torah or Law of God, or the first five books, the Nevi'im, the Prophets, and the Writings, or Ketuvim. Uh, he, had, he had said in Luke 24 that those three sections of Scripture would, would all see fulfillment. Uh, Jesus had said, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. That's the the, the Torah, uh, the, the Old Testament. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. Jesus had already described a view of Scripture that saw even the accent marks as divinely superintended and from God. He said in Matthew 5, don't think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Again, that threefold division of the Hebrew Bible, Tanakh. Uh, don't think I have come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. He said, not the least stroke of a pen, not the tiniest letter, not the, not even an accent mark will be removed until everything within them has been fulfilled. That's such a high view of the inspiration of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, Jesus had an exalted view of scripture. I remember R.C. Sproul, a theologian, uh, now deceased and with his Lord, having a, a conversation with an old friend of his, a uh, friend from his seminary days, and his friend told him, you know, R.C., I don't really believe all that stuff, Bible, authority, inspiration, uh, but don't worry, I'm still a Christian, I'm committed to Jesus. And R.C. asked him, well, then how does Jesus exercise his authority over you? And he was dumbfounded. Because without some means of communicating to us what he desires, there is no way for Christ to exercise his lordship over us. It's the cost of any real relationship. You know the, the, the movie, the novel, Stepford Wives, uh, when the, the men of Stepford, Connecticut, decide that uh, they're sick of their wives constantly criticizing them and nagging and not doing a good enough job fixing dinner and not vacuuming the floors in pearls and high heels like June Cleaver. And so they finally decide that they're just going to bump off all their wives and replace them with robot wives. And these robot wives are smoking hot, and they are ready to do whatever you want, whenever you want. And when you get home, your smoking hot robot wife, with all of her beauty, is there in her pearls and her vacuum with her high heels on, all prettied up and ready with a delicious meal for you. And it's almost heavenly, the men of Stepford, Connecticut, get everything they want except what? Relationship. Love. Because in order to have a real relationship based on real love, the other person has to be able to tell you that you're wrong. And a lot of us, I think, like a Stepford God who is of our own imagining. But unless you have a God who can tell you you're wrong when you don't want to hear it, you don't have a relationship with God. It's like St. Augustine said back in the end of the 4th century, beginning of the, uh, of the 5th, in his, his Contra Faustum book 17. He said, if you believe what you like 
and reject what you don't like in Scripture. You believe not in the gospel, but in yourselves. Indeed, Jesus had such an exalted view of Scripture, and the apostles had such an exalted view as well, and they even attest to one another's authority. Have you noticed in the New Testament where you know Paul, as a Jewish scholar, uh, would, it was interesting, in Colossians 4, he says, oh, in this letter of Colossians, he says, that's been read to you, see to it that after it's been read in your church, that it's passed along and read in the other churches. Now, what does that mean? That means send to the email attachment, post to Facebook, make sure everybody sees it, right? No. What was read in the churches? They're going back to the ancient synagogue practice where, where the reader would go up on, go up and approach the bima, where the scripture, where the scrolls of the Torah and the prophets were. You know, it's like when Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth and he approached the bima and he took the scroll of Isaiah and he read from it and then said, this day these words are fulfilled in your presence. What was read in the scripture, what was read in, in, in the church, in the synagogue, was the scripture. And when Paul is saying, make sure this is read in all the churches, he's saying, I want you to put Colossians right up next to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Isaiah, and Malachi. It's amazing. And then Peter with a low cut, does actually vouch for Paul as being Scripture. In 2 Peter 3, uh, St. Peter says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul, they had a special relationship. <laughs> Paul rebuked him. Uh, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes in the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. Oh, you don't say. You know, uh, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. That's from Peter. Uh, which, which ignorant and unstable people distort, Peter explains, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. You hear that? What is Peter just called Paul's letters? He's called them scriptures. So we have it on the authority of Jesus, who is investing his authority in the 11, in his apostles, saying that I will remind you of everything I have said, and I will give you further instruction, and those who receive you are receiving me. And then, you know, Peter writes his gospel through his companion Mark, and Luke writes his gospel uh, through, you know, working alongside Paul. And, and Peter, who was always chief among the apostles in the book of Acts, vouches for Paul's letters and says that they're also scripture. And the rest of the books of the New Testament, so far as we know, were written by apostles among those 11. And this apostolic community or first century apostolate then becomes the living firsthand memory of Jesus within which these New Testament documents are all written, circulated, and received as scripture by the churches. And speaking of these apostles, these 11, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whoever accepts you accepts me. He's saying that to accept the apostolic writings, their witness, what we have collected as the New Testament is to accept Jesus himself. Jesus is saying the connection is that tight. And the point is this. None of these New Testament documents arose in a vacuum. 
they arose with a very tightly knit community of people, a bounded community who had walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry, who had seen him resurrected from the dead, whose living ministry, firsthand memory, continued until the year 100 when John died. This was a tight-knit community of people who were all going to their deaths for the sake of the message of Jesus because they were so convinced that it's actually true and it's our only hope for ourselves and for our world. And within this this tightly bounded community, members of this community who had been given authority by Jesus to write this authoritative memoir, this instruction, within this tightly knit community, they received this scripture as from Jesus, inspired by his spirit to be read just like the Jewish scriptures. There was no room within such a tightly bounded community for forgeries. There was no room within this kind of tight apostolic community for somebody to make something up. If you made something up, they would have known because the living memory was so tightly held together within this community. Uh, you know, they had seen Jesus resurrected from the dead. They had witnessed him. They had seen him communicating to the apostles this authority with which they're granted. And the apostolic community had such a high view of Scripture. Sometimes, you know, people suggest in trying to find some wiggle room in the Bible, they suggest that the way biblical prophecy or, or revelation happened is, for example, some Hebrew prophet or apostle would have some visual image that God would give, God supernaturally revealing something, some picture thing, and then they would go about on their own and try to put words to it to interpret it. And within that human interpretation of the apostle, there's room for mistakes, and yet... St. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, above all, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's a, a dual authorship that the prophet is speaking, that God is superintending everything such that what, what we receive is something that God has put his approval on. Wow. St. Paul even avoids the language of inspiration and uses the language instead of expiration, of being exhaled. In 2 Timothy 3, he says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, all Scripture, all hegraphe in Greek, the whole Scripture is God-breathed. Get that? Breathed out is exhaled by God and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that a man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He totalizes it in this way. And, and granted, there were no printing presses until you know the 16th century. The church in every city didn't have every book of the Bible early on. They had to be copied by hand. They had to be circulated in person. Around the year 150, so 50 years after the Apostle John dies, the Moratorian canon in, in Rome listed the books that were received and read in all of the churches of central Italy. It lists four Gospels, one by Matthew, one by Mark, one by Luke, one by John. It lists the book of Acts as being part of their scripture. It lists all 13 of Paul's letters. It lists a letter by James, three letters from John, a letter by Jude, and an apocalypse, a revelation according to St. John. This is in the year 150. The only missing items were Hebrews and Peter's letters, and Peter had 
written his letter and sent them out from Rome, and evidently they hadn't come back yet. Uh, Twenty years later, Irenaeus lists the exact same New Testament we have today in the year 170. You know, the church never saw itself as creating the Bible, but only receiving it. Um, later on, when the church did formally compile the official global list of what books are in the Bible, you know, they, they looked at which ones were, were, were coming from that early apostolic community, which ones were written by an apostle, which ones were universally received, not just in one corner of the empire, but all over the earth by all of the Christians, which ones had antiquity. They go all the way back. And then when there was one question about, about the shepherd of Hermas, interesting little letter, uh, it went back to the same time as the apostles. And yet the shepherd of Hermas acknowledges himself as being beneath the apostles within that, and so it was not included in the canon uh, of, of the Bible. You know, these, these are books that we received out of that apostolic community, and that apostolic community didn't create them. The Holy Spirit was working through, through Jesus. Uh, and so we've acknowledged them to be an infallible, totally trustworthy rule for doctrine and life not to be trifled with, not to be toyed with, not to be looked up, down upon as if the church is an authority over the Bible, but to always have it above us, calling us to account because the church can be wrong. And Scripture has that authority. Of the apostles, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whoever accepts you accepts me. Because this is the vehicle through which Jesus exercises his loving and compassionate and saving accountability, direction, and lordship over our lives. Now, if Jesus had such a high view of the authority of the Bible, we have to ask the question, and but don't laugh, it's a serious question, is it possible in his incarnation, with the limitations of having a human brain, that Jesus incarnate could have been mistaken in his teaching about the Bible. It's a sophisticated argument, because certainly Jesus had a human brain. Human brains do have limitations. It is certainly possible that Jesus might have believed something at some point in his life that, 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 that maybe wasn't true wasn't true because he had no ability to know. It's certainly possible in his humiliation as a, a servant that Jesus was not aware of every giant redwood sapling that was beginning to grow in Oregon at that time. This is likely true. He became man, a God-man, and limited himself within his incarnation. And yet, the important point is that Jesus taught the authority of Scripture and he thought, taught it authoritatively, and he taught it authoritatively in the name of God. And for any teacher to teach something that's false, whether they know it or not, to say something that you don't know absolutely certainty is true, and to teach that in the name of God is a very grievous sin. And if Jesus taught false doctrine, then what we lose is something even bigger because then we lose the saving power of the cross. Because if that is the case, then Jesus on the cross, the only sins he was paying for on the cross were his own. As a false teacher who had failed to verify what he taught doctrinally and authoritatively in the name of God his Father. 
would remove the cross. And that's where this whole narrative with Judas, this whole narrative of betrayal is leading us, is to the cross. It's the cross that this whole scripture is pointing us to. Even when telling us that we're big shameful sinners, even telling us we're wrong, he's always pointing us to the cross in which our Savior died. That, you know, Jesus. This message of the Bible, this message of the New Testament, this message of love toward sinners like me, love toward the broken like you, a story of redemption, of salvation, of a God who entered into history in order to take upon himself the weight that you and I could never bear carry and to carry it all the way to, to the cross. In verse 21, Jesus became troubled in spirit. And he testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. And he was troubled in spirit because he was going to the cross. On April 27th of 2002, in the Russian city of Barkatova, there's an anti-terrorism raid And the perpetrator, when surrounded, took a young woman to his chest and he held a gun up to her head and he carried a grenade and he rushed out in the street and there were too many people in the street. They couldn't fire on him. There were police everywhere, but the people, this crowd of people, they thought it was a film shoot. And so they just looked on admiringly. It was really interesting. And then finally, one of the officers rushes the guy from behind and he throws the grenade right into the crowd. And a young Russian police officer by the name of Oleg Okramenko saw that grenade and threw his body on top of it right as that thing blew up. And all the thrust and all of the power of that grenade ripped through his body and took his life instantly. And yet in doing so, he had saved the lives of so many in that crowd, including many of his colleagues. Friends, that is what Jesus was doing on the cross. Only on the cross, he was doing it for you. And the grenade that was going to explode was not merely a human grenade, but it was the grenade of God's anger and displeasure against all human cruelty and hate and injustice and sin throughout all of history. It was the wrath due for my sin and for your sin. And Jesus jumped on it and he let it wreck his body and tear it apart and destroy him utterly. And he did it because he loved you. The Bible says it is when we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. I don't know that the apostles really understood all that Jesus was telling them when he told them that whoever accepts you is accepting me. They knew because John, the youngest of the bunch, the one Jesus loved, Jesus told John that he would remind them and superintend the message by His Spirit. But that message of grace, that gospel, that story of Jesus dying for us when we were His enemies, it's the one thing that can motivate us to make the truly hard decisions when it's your life that will be wrecked if you're faithful to God. When it's your comfort that will be taken from you if you're faithful to God's Word. When it's your future that seems in question, should you trust God and obey what He has commanded in His Word? And yet it is just that kind of blood-bought loyalty that has made a whole lot of people stick through a hard marriage 
because they trust that Jesus knew what's best. It's that grace that has made more than a few Christians sell everything they had and give it to the poor. It's that blood-bought loyalty to our Savior, Jesus, that opens our hearts to receive even a hard word from Him bathed in love for us. Give you a little bit of history. The year was 1806, and the church had just concluded that for a follower of Jesus to own slaves violated the teaching of the Bible. And a lot of church members owned slaves. This was the Reformed Presbyterian Church. It had congregations throughout South Carolina, Virginia, Georgia, a lot of very well-off planters among them. And yet the denomination had cited numerous passages in Scripture and declared this. The holding of human beings of whatever race or color as slaves, being in every respect opposed to the word of God and inconsistent with the principles of the gospel of Christ, a gross infringement upon the rights of man, and so a sin against God should be held and treated by national authorities as a crime. Nor can any constitution of government be just or moral which does not provide against the commission of such a crime within its jurisdiction. As early as 1800, a court of the denomination had ruled that, that slave owners must emancipate all of their slaves or be refused the communion of the church. There's history here. This was one of the denominations that eventually made its way into the Presbyterian Church in America in 1982. And yet the conclusion in 1806 had followed years of, of biblical study. They had looked at Deuteronomy 23, where God commanded, you shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. The Hebrew scriptures had instituted the death penalty for, for the slave trade. Exodus 21 had said, He that steals a man and sells him, if he be found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. The Protestant reformer John Calvin had commented in the 16th century about ancient slavery, saying, Thanks be given to our Lord that this barbarity has long since been abolished. English slaves had been emancipated in the 1100s by a church council at Armagh. Uh, you know, but in 1806, in the United States, the church had just told its slave-owning members that they couldn't take communion until they sold their slave or until they released their slaves. And what happened next is not what you would expect. What you would expect is something along the lines of, "There's more than one Presbyterian denomination, guys. I'm going to try the one down the street." You would expect anger, outburst, rage, conflict, and yet what happened, in fact, was beautiful. For the most part, what happened is this. In states where it was legal to free slaves, slave owners saved up money and freed their slaves, giving them enough money and enough resources to start a life on their own. But in many states in the American South, it was not legal to free slaves. And for those people, what that required was that they sell everything they had except their slaves and move west and over the decades, what happened are thousands of Reformed Presbyterians left places like South Carolina, left places like Georgia, and moved to places like Illinois and Ohio and Missouri. That's why we have Reformed Presbyterian churches in the Midwest today. These people, these Christians, 
lost everything. Because the Bible said that the way they'd been living their life was sin. And you can imagine the hostility they got from their southern neighbors. Caravans of Presbyterian covenanters stretching across the country in a trek to a new life where not only they but their slaves could live in freedom and build lives as servants and sisters and brothers in Jesus. Many of them became workers in what became the Underground Railroad. They lobbied state legislatures to end the injustice, but they lost their wealth and they lost their homes and they lost everything because they viewed the Bible as an authority above them, as the Word of Christ Himself, the Word of love Himself. Himself. They viewed him as their Lord who would take care of them when they suffered to obey him. And now they viewed their former slaves as sisters and brothers. They embraced them where perhaps in ignorance or perhaps just in evil they had sinned before. You know, protecting, protection was now given. It's the power of the gospel to change lives. They surrendered to God's word. They entrusted the results to Christ. They entrusted their very future to their Savior. And what they found was comfort and hope and joy in their suffering because what they found in their suffering was Jesus had become alive to them. Friends, beautiful things happen when you put your heart under God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, our Savior God, we give You thanks for the blood of Jesus on our behalf. We give you thanks for this table. We give you thanks for this bread and for this wine. We consecrate these elements to you now in the name of Jesus, your Son, and ask that you would awaken the gospel in us as we commune in this meal together. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.